You've uh, probably heard the phrase, at all costs. The dictionary defines that as regardless of the price to be paid or the effort required. And we usually reserve that phrase to signify something that's of high importance or a passion that we have to achieve. Phrases like, he wanted to win at all costs. She was willing to protect her family at all costs. They were avoiding that moment at all costs. Now, when sin entered the world, it was because humankind was unwilling to preserve their relationship with God at all costs. Adam and Eve chose sin, and it cost them everything. It happened in the garden, but it it happens now today. Sin is our biggest problem, and it's costing us a relationship with God. And to communicate the price of sin, God graciously set up a system for his creation to make a payment. The entire sacrificial system we see in the Old Testament is God showing us that sin costs something. And we see it through a sacrifice given. A sacrifice not of something trivial, but it would hold extreme value, a life. Usually a valuable animal that was without blemish to show the perfection that was required and the importance it must hold to the person giving it. It wasn't just a financial sacrifice, it was an act of obedience and faith and trust that God would provide. In Genesis chapter 22, there's a moment where a man named Abraham is asked to follow God at all costs. See, Abraham was promised by God that he would have many descendants, And all the nations would be blessed through him. The only problem, he didn't have a son. And so for years, he's praying and waiting and at times taking matters into his own hands to try and fulfill the promise. And and eventually God blesses him with his son, Isaac. And it would seem that the promise is going to be fulfilled exactly the way Abraham pictured it. But then God makes a very extreme request. He says this to Abraham in Genesis 22. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, that is not a small thing to ask of Abraham. If you see that as cruel or unjust, then you can just begin to imagine the thoughts that we assume Abraham had the right to think. Yet despite the immense personal cost, Abraham did not hesitate to obey God's command. He gathers everything needed and begins the journey to Moriah. Now in that moment, you might question his sanity. You for sure start to question, do you actually love your child? Couldn't you have asked God for something different? Couldn't there be another way? I'll give you anything else. But Abraham's response is, not my will, but yours be done. And he believed God's promises even in the face of extreme loss, that God would be faithful to his promise to him. 
Isaac must have thought something was off about this because at one point in the journey, he asked his father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responds by saying, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The story ends with Isaac lying on the altar and Abraham is prepared to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice his only son. And a voice calls out, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham turns and he sees in a thicket a ram caught by its horns. And he takes the ram and he places it on the altar as a substitute for his son Isaac sacrificing it to the Lord, and he names the mountain, the Lord will provide. Abraham was ready to do anything required at all costs, yet God steps in and provides the sacrifice for him. Generations later, over in the book of Exodus, there is an entire nation called the Israelites, direct descendants of Abraham and Isaac. It's a great nation, but for the last 400 years, they have been enslaved to the Egyptians. Doesn't sound like much of a blessing. See, Pharaoh had captured the Israel nation, forced them to work, and at one point in their history, fearing an uprising was coming, had his army go throughout the entire nation and take all of the sons and drown them in the Nile. One child escaped. His name was Moses. And years later in his life, Moses finds himself being instructed by the Lord to go to Pharaoh and release the Israelites from their impression. God tells him what to say. He says this, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The cost of sin is life. But Pharaoh refused. And so God begins to release plagues on the nation of Egypt, showcasing his power and his authority, showing Pharaoh that it was not him who sat on the throne, but God who sits on the throne of this world. And the tenth and final plague threatened to Pharaoh is the death of every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. Still, Pharaoh will not relent. And so God says to Moses, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Just as the Egyptians had enslaved God's firstborn son, just as they had stolen their sons and drowned them in the river, God was now executing his justice on the land of Egypt. But he kept his promise to the nation of Israel. He instructs them to offer a lamb as a sacrifice and to take a branch and to dip it into the blood of the lamb and to spread it on the doorposts of their home. And as the Lord would pass through Egypt, this is what he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The cost of sin did not come to the homes that had the payment of blood on their door frames. The firstborn son was again saved by a substitute sacrifice. And this is the moment where the Israelites are freed from their captivity. They were released from the bondage of slavery. And as they leave the land, they are instructed to look back and remember every year the Passover lamb to offer another sacrifice and remind themselves that God is willing to save his people at all costs. Since the beginning, God has been showing us the cost of salvation all while showing us as well that we are unable to do it ourselves. God provided the ram to take the place of Isaac. God provided deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh and the instruction to place the blood of the lamb over their house so that he might pass judgment over them. And all of this was a mere shadow of what God was preparing to do the offering and sacrifice he was willing to give at all costs. Well, greetings, friends. And I want you to, for a moment, uh, to fast forward 1,400 years from the moment that the Israelites were freed from the captivity in Egypt. And in the gospel account that Matthew writes, in Matthew chapter 27, Verse 27, he writes this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit to God. I'm so grateful that you would come and pause on this Good Friday with us at Gospel City Church. Something that we say regularly around this time of year is that you can't have the triumph and the celebration and the jubilation of the empty tomb of Easter Sunday until you have first come to grips with the cost and even the horror of your sin that crucified Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. Now you've already heard in this service some instances in the Old Testament where God asked some pretty costly things of those who were followers of him. And you might be asking yourself the question, why should I follow a God where 
blood and death seems to constantly be surrounding him. Why should I follow a God who asks such extreme and costly things of his followers? And the answer to that question is because God is creator and God is holy. The truth that God is creator means that God created you in his image to have a relationship with you. Therefore, he has ownership over your life. And then when we say that God is holy, we're just acknowledging his otherness, that he's set apart, that there's none like him. God is 100% perfect. And so when sin entered into the world, it put this impossible chasm between the holy creator God and his most prized creation. That's humanity. That's you. And so God, who is holy and righteous, meaning he's always executing what is right, doing what is right, and God who is just, how does a God deal with sinners? What does a God do with a creation and a humanity that is separated from his perfection? And the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Because there is sin in this world, something will always have to die. And so God, the most just thing that God could do is absolutely wipe out the face of the planet from humanity. He could wipe out every human being on the face of this planet and he would be perfectly just to do so. That's how holy God is and that's how unholy you are. But God has always provided mercy throughout history. Rather than God wiping out the planet entirely and starting over with a fresh creation, he had a plan to redeem those who were separated from him to bring a remnant of people back into right standing with him and to save them and to redeem them from their sins. And so God, he, he allowed sacrifice to happen all through the Old Testament. You see the instances that we talked about today, but these followers of God recognized the weight of their sin they recognized that they were unholy and God was holy and they trusted God and they realized that it should be their death, but God in his mercy allowed the death of a bull, of a ram, of a goat, year after year, so that these followers, these people might have a relationship with him. Now, I want you to rewind seven centuries from the moment I just read which was depicting the sacrifice, the cost of Jesus Christ. And if you rewind 700 years before Jesus ever came, there was a prophet named Isaiah who wrote in Isaiah chapter 53, this is what he wrote. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's really a remarkable passage in the Old Testament, seemingly describing a man 
who was being afflicted, who was being punished, who was being cursed, who was being mocked, but not for his own sins and wrongdoings, but for the sins and wrongdoings of others. Those are the sins and wrongdoings of you and me. This man that Isaiah 53 prophesied about was the same Jesus that came 700 years later to be brutally mocked and spit upon and beaten and crucified on a tree. Only it wasn't just some man. Jesus was not just some man. Jesus was not just some man's son like Isaac was Abraham's son. Jesus was the only begotten son of the holy creator God. And John 3.16, you know it well. It says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus, he was the only man in history who was perfect, the only man in history who had never sinned, the only man in history who had right standing with God the Father, which made him the only man in history worthy to crush the head of the enemy, to pay for your sin, and to satisfy the debt that was owed because the wrath of God is against all ungodliness, which therefore that means that the wrath of God is against you and against me. We desperately need the death of Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing about Good Friday. Here's the thing about God's only begotten son being crucified on the cross. You will not appreciate the magnitude. You will not come to grips with the magnitude or you will not worship God the Father properly until you recognize that it is your rightful place on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because of your sin and your shame, because of your very nature, you should be the one crucified. You should be the one beaten and spit upon and mocked and rejected by men, rejected by God. You should be the one whose hands were pierced and whose feet were pierced and you would be left on a cross to die. But on that day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus became the ram in the thicket for you. God in his mercy wasn't willing to allow Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son. And so he provided a spotless ram in the thicket. The beauty of the gospel is that God gave what was most precious to him, what cost him everything so that you could become his child, so that you could become his treasure, so that you could reign on high with Christ forever. Jesus is the perfect lamb, the perfect substitute for the death that you owe. And he died on a cross in your place as a substitute for your sins that day. Likewise, you won't appreciate the magnitude. You won't get the magnitude of the cross until you recognize that you are in bondage and you are in slavery to your own sin and to death. You think 400 years 
being enslaved to the Egyptians is bad. Try an entire life enslaved to sin and death only to stand before God in eternity with your own efforts and your own doing and all of the things that you build up in this life and God saying, depart from me, I never knew you. What you bring to the table doesn't match up to my holiness, depart from me. The wrath of God is set against you because of your sin, because of your own efforts. And there's a place called hell that God sends all who have not been changed by the precious blood of Jesus. But understand this, when Jesus died on the cross that day, when his innocent blood was shed, Jesus's blood can become the, the, the blood on the doorpost of your life. Just as God in his mercy allowed the angel of death to pass over every household that had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost that day. And as he passed over, the firstborn sons lived and the people of God went free. Christ's blood wants to cover your life. Christ died so that he could cover your sins, so that he could atone for your sins, so that he could satisfy the wrath of God that is against you. And though you were as scarlet, the precious blood of Jesus can wash you white as snow. This is the beauty of the gospel, friends. And you might be saying, as you sit here on Good Friday, how do I know that Jesus was the ram in the thicket for me? How do I know that his blood has covered my life? And I want to take you to what Jesus said before his death with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said this. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, a death has to take place in your life still because of sin, but it doesn't have to be the brutal crucifixion that Christ endured. It doesn't have to be a death where the wrath of God is set against you for eternity. Denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ, it looks like opening your hands to the Lord and saying, I'm not going to live my life for myself anymore. It's not my standards. It's not my morality. It's not my efforts to be holy or to be a good person. Only the sacrifice of Christ can save. Only the sacrifice of Christ can cover my ungodliness and my unholiness. And so we surrender. The Bible talks about it like repenting, turning, doing a 180 from sin, from the things of this world, and then following Christ, walking in a way that shows we believe he is God, that he is good, and that we've surrendered our lives to him forever. The Bible goes on, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is how so many people live their life. You've heard the message of Jesus dying on the cross. Maybe you haven't been in church since last Good Friday. And the message is always inspiring and you leave feeling something, but then you just jump back into 
trying to build a resume and trying to jump through the hoops and trying to climb the ladder of success. What does it profit a man if you have everything and you get to the end of your life and you find out that the wages of your sin and efforts equals death for eternity? That is not where you want to land. The gospel beckons us to trust in Jesus as the only way. The gospel beckons us to call upon the name of the Lord and we will be saved.